thank you very much uh, for inviting us to be part of this uh, event. And I should, a um, bit of a disclaimer is that Nicola and I actually uh, presented a version, an early version of this paper at a previous SRHU event. So apologies to those of you who are here and have already heard parts of this. It has moved on since then. Uh, and it has been, this is the self-promotion time, been published uh, in uh, the Sociological Review, which there are copies available. So as um, Richard said, really our paper is really moving on to this kind of the question of beyond and hopefully following on quite nicely from some of Camille's um, points, some of the questions around the role of graduate employers. And in particular what we're interested in in this paper is to think about uh, the role of graduate employers and in relation to the kind of reproduction of inequalities in graduate outcomes. And we do this in particular through looking at kind of elite graduate employers or highly coveted employers and their recruitment material and how these construct particular ideas of the kind of ideal graduate um, or employee. So to give it a, a bit of context, which I'm sure is going to be familiar to, to all of you. So despite increasing numbers of young people from disadvantaged backgrounds entering um, higher education, we know that inequalities persist uh, in, well, still in access, but also in experience and pertinent to this paper in terms of outcomes as well. So broadly, graduates from socially disadvantaged backgrounds experience considerably worse employment outcomes than their middle class peers. So that, that relates both in terms of rates of employment, but also earnings. And that's even if they complete the same course from the same university. And obviously, needless to say, these kind of social inequalities or inequalities of social class intersect also with ethnicity uh, and gender. So overall, surprise, surprise, white male and middle class graduates uh, and those attending more prestigious universities have the highest employment rates and earnings. And of course, this is a kind of perennial uh, kind of concern, but has in particular received particular attention under kind of government agendas around fair access to the professions and social mobility. <coughs> so we know from this work that high status occupational sectors uh, such as law, media and politics are disproportionately composed of individuals from socially privileged backgrounds, uh, including, surprise, surprise, those who attended Oxbridge or fee-paying schools. And this has received lots of uh, attention through the kind of social mobility, well, what was the Social Mobility and Child Poverty Commission and now just the Social Mobility uh, Commission. And furthermore, as work by Sam Friedman and Daniel Lawrenson has also pointed out, that even when... Uh, individuals from more socially deprived backgrounds do get access to elite professions, they still suffer what they call a kind of class ceiling. Uh, so they earn significantly less than those their peers from more advantaged backgrounds. So despite these kind of policy commitments to breaking open Britain's elite and ensuring kind of wider access to the professions, actually these have become less socially representative over time. Um, and so even under, the, uh, under its new guise of the Social Mobility Commission, under a new membership, um, that report has, uh, has demonstrated how those from better off backgrounds are almost 80% more likely to be in a professional job than, the, than their working class peers. And that this immobility has remained stagnant despite this kind of series of kind of government interventions and a kind of discourse around having to, to tackle this problem. And as uh, this report um, identifies, again, the importance of kind of an intersectional lens of thinking about how social class intersects with inequalities of gender, ethnicity and disability. So, for example, just thinking about gender, I don't know if you can see this image. This comes from the recent Social Mobility Commission's uh, State of the Nation report. Uh, and this is data from the Labour Force Survey. So we see here, um, again, that, well, men from... Um, 
professional uh, managerial backgrounds are most likely to remain in that those kind of occupations. Men from working class backgrounds fare worse, uh, and women fare even even worse. Even worse, sir? That's not right. That's not a word. Um, uh, so um, this kind of idea of a kind of um, that, that there's this, this issue around access to elite professions. Obviously, universities have been tasked with kind of having a role to play in kind of, of, of addressing this. Uh, so they are often kind of positioned as gatekeepers of opportunity under Alan Milburn, when he was previously head of Social Mobility Commission, and it's in, in its most recent report, the universities located as a kind of engines of social mobility. So there's a particular emphasis on the role of universities and having to do more to help uh, uh, graduates from disadvantaged backgrounds to access these kind of well-paid, <coughs> high-status employment. And of course this aligns with a kind of broader, kind of increasing focus on, on universities and what they're doing to increase uh, graduate employability. So we see this, for example, through the TEF, uh, but also um, this kind of discourse of uh, value for money. So this um, uh, screenshot of the Guardian um, press report, which was in February this month, uh, which was kind of a, a, about a response to a pledge made in the Tory party manifesto in November to kind of introduce a kind of Ofsted-style Ofsted rating systems uh, for universities, whether they're doing enough to support uh, their graduates into in, uh, high-earning uh, occupations. And in particular, we see the role of the OFS being tasked with having a duty of kind of locating this. So there's, in, under this discourse of value for money, there's this idea that universities have to be very transparent about graduate earnings to kind of offer students choice uh, and to be held accountable for graduate outcomes. So our kind of uh, intervention here is that we feel that this is um, kind of problematic, this particular onus that's placed on universities. And this is, in fact, uh, recognised by Universities UK, who say that while differences in graduate outcomes can, of course, be explained by push factors, so what universities are doing, there are also important pull factors emerging from employers' practices. So they say while universities have a responsibility to support the progression of students from underrepresented groups, employers... Um, also uh, have an important role to play, not least in ensuring that their practices do not risk undermining efforts in the education sector. Um, so, so, you know, our starting point for this paper is really to, to move the spotlight. So, although acknowledging that there are certainly things that universities can do, really thinking that we, we can't just focus on that, we need to look at what employers uh, are doing um, in relation to enhancing or blocking particular uh, pathways for students. And of course, you can see some of these um, kind of push factors or pull factors in uh, the High Flyer survey. So I don't know, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with this fascinating document that comes out every year, which is a survey of graduate uh, employers or top graduate employers. And we can already see here that this is not a level playing field. So graduate employers um, actively market their opportunities in an average of 24 HEIs, um, uh, and if we think that, that there are over 140, that's a very small pool to which they're, they're targeting uh, their graduate positions. And we see again that these are in particular targeting kind of high tariff universities, so no surprises really in, in the top 10 graduate uh, uh, universities that are targeted. We also see inequalities, regional inequalities in, in terms of where vacancies are located. But also what one thing that is interesting that comes through this report is that most of the graduate positions are offered to, to students who'd already done some kind of work experience or internship. So we can see that there's this narrowing of, uh, of, of who can even get into these top professions. 
And some of this work is also, um, we can get some of these insights from um, some really rich qualitative studies into elite professions. So Louise Ashley's work in particular has been really uh, useful to us. So she and her colleagues looked at the hiring strategies of elite law and professional service firms and argued that kind of social class bias was absolutely integral to the ways in which they were selecting candidates, even though this was kind of hidden under kind of discourses of meritocracy and ideas of kind of uh, fit for the firm. So they looked at how uh, graduate, uh, how employers uh, screened for kind of institutional capital, so degrees from elite universities, but also this kind of embodied cultural capital. So, so uh, graduates who kind of presented a particular image, who could hold themselves in, in a particular way, that could signal this kind of upmarket image to clients. Um, and, and this work has also been uh, uh, shown in uh, work by Sam Friedman and Daniel Lorison as well. Um, and in America, Rivera's work has also been really interesting, similarly looking at the kind of recruitment strategies of um, elite professions. And what she argued in particular is that in some of these firms, there was this kind of idea that they were doing better and, and kind of were valuing diversity and were marketing their opportunities in more, amongst more soci socially diverse uh, students. Uh, but argued that this was a kind of form of impression man management that was kind of representing them as kind of good employers, as diverse. And this is something that Nicola's going to come back to uh, in our presentation. So what we wanted to do for this is rather than kind of interview graduate em employers, which is quite a hard thing to do itself. So instead, our, our, our study looked at the uh, graduate marketing or uh, graduate uh, recruitment material, so of, of top employers. So really looking at how they were constructing ideas of the ideal graduate. So we weren't just interested in kind of the formal kind of selection criteria that, that, that was listed or the kind of application process, but also how these graduate employees were signaling particular ideas of who they were looking for, okay? So that the kinds of graduates that they wanted to attract. Um, and the two companies that we look, look at um, are Google and PwC. So these are, kind of very, very highly rated by students uh, in surveys as kind of the most coveted employers. But also interesting because they represent two different kind of occupational sectors. So we're looking at some of the similarities and differences across these. So we did a visual discourse analysis looking at this kind of pre-hiring recruitment material uh, and seeing these, as we said, as kind of very important kind of articulations of the qualities that they seek in graduates. And so we were looking in particular at kind of how these construct, you know, ideas of the ideal kind of employee who would fit within that kind of occupational sector or, or company. And I'm going to hand over to Nicola for the juicy stuff. You timed that pretty well. Was it good? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so when we looked at this data and as we've been trying to analyse um, all of this information, we um, started thinking about this process that we were calling social magic and we were influenced by um, Steph Lawler's work um, here and Kim had seen Steph give a paper and we kind of got quite taken with that, this notion of social magic. It builds upon the work that we've done before using Pierre Bourdieu but taking it a little bit of a step further and thinking about how capitals are valued and how capitals are converted, forms of capital are, are magically converted into, into value and what is going on in that process. So hopefully as I go, go, go through the data this you know, will, will become more self-explanatory. 
but we're defining social magic um, as the means of obscuring the conditions in which value is constructed so that fit comes to be seen as natural and the cultural arbitrary is denied. Lawler's definition of, of this is that social magic works to eclipse the social relations that produce it in the first place, casting some persons as naturally bearing the distinctions that give them value. One, one kind of little shorthand example of that might be um, how employers will, 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 will look for, um, will read certain qualities in a particular way. So they, they might be looking for confidence, someone who's confident and articulate, but what they will do is they will read a posh accent as, as being confident and articulate. They'll read a regional <coughs> accent as, as, as maybe not having the same value or not necessarily expressing the same level of knowledge. And so it's, it's how, how, how value is read off certain characteristics and is converted um, it, sort of through this process of social magic. So it's a process that gives legitima legitimation to decision-making about fit and who belongs. Um, and it's a way for employers to say, we have objective measures when actually the, the decision-making can be very subjective about who they connect with and who they like and whether that person matches culturally their, their expectations of who's right and who has the right body, etc. Um, and, and we've been building on the work of, um, of Puar and her work around bodies and belonging. And she said that social spaces are not blank and open for anybody to occupy. Some bodies have the right to belong in certain locations, while others are marked out as trespassers, trespassers who are in accordance with how spaces and bodies are imagined, circumscribed as being out of place. So how are people read as being right, in place, belonging? and how are people read as being out of place and, and what's going on with these graduate employers when they're trying to construct the right body, the right person and, and who they're denying through, through that. So moving on um, to talk about Google, when we started analysing Google and what they were looking for and what they were saying they were looking for in, in their graduates, we came across this really important concept of googliness. So, on top of um, they the, the, the look for four areas, they've got four areas of assessment. They're looking for general cognitive ability, which you know potentially measurable, um, leadership, uh, role-related knowledge, and then they're looking for this really really important ingredient, and that is googliness. And we we came across these different. We tried to get how to get at the definition of googliness and that was quite difficult um so we got these little phrases and and quotes and things like the words googly and googliness sometimes also spelled googly and googliness are not to be found in common language they are almost magic words uh, even at google where they've been coined it's not clear to everyone what these words mean and it's no surprise you don't get a handout with a description and googliness has indeed more than one meaning so in some ways this allows the employers to very much, you know, just select, um, you know, for what they, what they want. Well, what, what does that look like? What, how does one present Googliness? How do you, if it's, if it's indefinable, um, it can mean anything. And in meaning anything, it kind of opens up this space for employers to make a lot of, um, a lot of decisions that really fly in the, the face of diversity and inclusion policies, etc. Um, so 
other little quotes from here are other companies screen for intelligence and experience and potential recruits, but Google also looks for Googliness, a mashup, there's a close definition here, of passion and drive that's hard to define but easy to spot. A bit like the X factor or something. So there's something really ambiguous here. It's, it's got a magical, mystical quality. It provides the mechanisms through which classed and gendered, racialized, ageist, ableist, um, forms of cultural sorting become naturalised. It, it, it allows employers to say that person has googliness and to, to then um, not have to consider um, aspects of, um, of inclusion. Okay, so we came across this interesting um, document which is Google's way of sifting for Googliness. So this is kind of how you might prepare for a Google interview. And these are the questions that you might, or similar questions that you might be asked in a Google interview. So one question, for example, could be, design an evacuation plan for San Francisco. Explain a database in three sentences to your eight-year-old nephew. Oh, I've lost it. Um, explain the significance of dead beef. I have no idea what dead beef is. <laughs> I don't have good ones. Um, why are manhole covers round? How much should you charge to wash all the windows in Seattle? How many golf balls can you fit in a school bus? So, you know, this is <laughs> quite interesting. Um, but so this is how Google might might try to find the magic combination of technical and social skills. Um, and then we, we find that, you know, Within this community, it's seen as um, the most difficult exam that you might ever say at the, the Google test. Um, so let's just give you a little bit of a flavour of, of what's going on with Google and, and how they're sorting their graduates. Uh, but we also came across all this, this, these notions of belonging and that, how that was really important to Google. And they talk about the Google family and they talk about um, something called intrapreneurship, which is um, sort of becoming part of the Google family or Google family as I've misspelt there. Um, and, and, but it's, it's entrepreneurialism, but for the greater good of the company. So it's using your individual skills but, but seeing that as a kind of co-production and a co-creation um, as part of buying into the googly fam the googliness family, the googly environment. environment. It's very hard to say, I keep saying that word googly. Um, and so in order to do that, um, you know, they expect people to, to buy into, into the workplace, to become part of the workplace, to see the workplace almost as an extension of their own home and to see them, you know, the, as a, as a place to be, a place to play, and then they expect these certain characteristics. It's almost like it's an, a reward for investing in the family and investing in the organisation. Very interested in youthfulness. Their environments are notoriously quirky. You know, um, the the Lon the googly Lon the Google London offices apparently have a rootmaster bus in them. You know, people are having meetings sitting in tree houses. You know, th these are the sorts of really playful and quirky environments that have been constructed by the company, and, and they're kind of notorious for for having this um, sort of space. But who can belong there, and who doesn't belong there? And it, it, so it does invoke notions of youthfulness, and um, you know, the ideal Google employee has no restrictions on their passion, no restrictions on their drive, and no restrictions on their commitment to, to the brand. They 
he or she will need to be unencumbered by financial constraints, carrying responsibilities and, dis and disabilities in order to fit and play in, in Google. So this was what we were thinking of with Google um, and, and trying to really understand you know, what was going on there um, in terms of um, who, who, who might belong. Um, so rather than being an incoherent personality quality that naturally <coughs> resides in individuals, Googliness is the result of accruing and mobilising certain highly valued and unequally distributed capitals. Through social magic, a magical veil is cast over these resources and the social relations that produce them. And I think in our paper we say that social magic is a, is a sleight of hand trick that transforms subjective value judgments into seemingly objective assessments without anyone recognising the illusion. And in order to kind of try to analyse the sorts of qualities that Google were looking for and then thinking about this process of social magic, we developed a social magic conversion table. Um, <laughs> we had fun doing that. Yeah, it was, we had fun with this paper. Um, so Google will say that they're looking for strong educational credentials. Now, what that is likely to mean is that they're looking for, if we, we cast social magic over that, what they're really looking for is a degree from an elite university. They're looking for passion and natural curiosity. That means someone who's had the potential and opportunity to get good extracurricular activities and express interesting leisure pursuits. And that requires certain forms of capital that are available to certain people highly motivated and they talk about internships as being important um, and so what, what, to demonstrate motivation people will need to have an internship ideally with Google and they will need social capital to access that and in order to have an internship in, in these sort of industries it's likely that it's an unpaid internship so it will require financial resources most likely coming from parents or source through family networks again ruling other certain people out from accessing these sorts of things. They ask for people to be a go-getting self-starter, I need to speed up, um, and, and, and to, have to show entrepreneurial, entrepreneurship. And um, so again, entrepreneurial activity needs to be undertaken in spare time, and it needs to be supported by available economic capital. Well, one can't um, demonstrate entrepreneurial activity or develop entrepreneurship without being able to make an investment and um, I'll just move on because I've got to get through PwC. Um, before talking about PwC, um, the thing that's really important about PwC is that they are really presenting and badging themselves as a, as a, a socially responsible um, organisation with a, a, a commitment to social mobility and they're gaining a lot of currency through this. In fact, um, they're gaining a lot of currency through the Social Mobility Employers Index. They work very. They, they work in alignment with the Social Mobility Commission, and they are performing. We would argue social mobility um, through their. Um, they're getting a lot of. Um, they're getting a lot of prestige through their performance of social mobility without actually having to enact social mobility, and um, they're also involved in the SOMOS which are the Social Mobility Awards, um, a, new, a new award, that, um, an annual award. And the, the, there's a, this is the, a nice picture from um, the Social Mobility Awards last year, um, which, you know, I don't 
yeah, that speaks for itself, you know, that, that we're now, um, you know, creating a whole kind of market and a whole system out of, um, you know, thinking about social, rewarding employers around social mobility, quite problematic. Um, I'm going to jump on to PwC. So they were in, looking at different industries is interesting. You know, to, to, if you display Googliness, you're probably not, you know, it's not really what PwC are looking for. But what they say they're looking for is they're looking for someone who has a personal brand. And they want you to, in your interview, you have to make the true you shine. Um, so, you know, it's got parallels with Googliness, but in a more corporate um, financial environment. And, and, and then who can, who can present that? What I'm going to do is jump right across to the PwC social magic conversion table. So they, their objective criteria, what they were looking for, again, strong educational credentials, degree from an elite university. Highly motivated, proactive career planner has undertaken an internship funded by parents. The ability to build genuine trust-based relationships. Now, how on earth do you demonstrate that in an interview? I have no idea. But perhaps it's about the embodied performance which matches the cultural values of the employer. Entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial activities supported by economic capital. Intelligence, good communicator. RP accent, deportment, dress. Now, my favourite is global acumen. They're looking for people who display global acumen. I really, that means having travelled, having had a gap year, having that um, being quite. You no, know, they also want someone who's a cosmopolitan actor. Well, who, who does, who can, who can perform that? Who can embody that? Other than people who have led a very privileged and cosmopolitan existence, potentially on a global, in the global playing playing field. Okay, conclusions. <laughs> um, Okay, so the value of critically, there, there is value in critically exploring employers' constructions of the ideal graduate. And we would be quite interested in taking this further and looking at across different industries and looking at the different, the different ways in which employee, they, they're trying to construct their ideal employee um, and, and how that, you know, that's different in each type of industry. Um, an initial survey of recruitment materials of other graduate employers in other sectors reveals similarities. For example, an emphasis on passion, drive, branding the self, entrepreneurialism. I can't remember what L W Y. Love what you do. Thanks, Kim. <laughs> yeah, so there's this. Also, key differences in how these qualities are expected to be presented and embodied across different occupational sectors. And employers like to espouse meritocratic and inclusive hiring practices, but the search for the right candidate uses processes of social magic, the means of obscuring the conditions in which value is constructed. Thank you.